Hello and welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. Today I talked to David MacDonald, who is an associate professor in the political science department at the University of Guelph. Dr. MacDonald has many different fields of interest, but what brings him to the podcast today is very specific and very timely to recent events in the news. The discovery of 215 young indigenous people buried on the property of the old Kamloops Indian Residential School reopened a great many old wounds in this country, and just in time for National Indigenous History Month. MacDonald has made residential schools a field of scholastic study, and it is the topic of this week's Guelph Politicast. This weekend, it was reported that the Sioux Valley Dakota Nation in Manitoba were working on trying to identify over 104 bodies in three cemeteries linked to the Brandon Indian Residential School. Only 78 of those bodies are accounted for in the actual burial records, and the First Nations people there are certain that there are more yet to be found. Nationwide, there may be between 11,000 and 15,000 missing children unaccounted for, which means this story is only going to get worse before it gets better. And better is what the cause of truth and reconciliation is supposed to be all about. In the meantime, though, it seems likely that no John A. MacDonald statue or effigy in this country will be safe. The destruction and beheading of those statues is an expression of anger by indigenous people and their allies. It's anger directed at government inaction. It's anger directed at the Catholic Church for the way they seem to be ignoring their role in the residential school system. And it's anger directed at those who say that this is the distant past and that indigenous people should just get over it. This is an emotional issue and it requires the cool clinical detachment of someone that can look at it from an analytical perspective. Fortunately, such expertise is readily available at the University of Guelph with Dr. David MacDonald. His book, The Sleeping Giant Awakens, Genocide, Indian Residential Schools, and the Challenge of Conciliation, came out in 2019 and made a case for calling the Indian residential school system in Canada a genocide. In a recent piece for the conversation, he called out the Canadian government for recognizing a genocide in China with the Uyghur population, while ignoring an other obvious one within our own borders. It's hard to think of a more essential topic for this National Indigenous History Month. So this week on the Guelph Politicast, MacDonald joins us to talk about how Canadian education is lacking when it comes to Indigenous history how we need to be able to talk about Canada's darker chapters, and what we should do with statues of problematic history figures. MacDonald will also talk about how he became interested in the topic of residential schools, his research into their history and their effects, and why he's comfortable calling it a genocide, despite hesitation to do so from other quarters. And finally, he will discuss what the government and church should be doing right now in regards to residential schools, how many missing Indigenous kids might still be out there, and whether or not there should be consequences for the Catholic Church in their refusal to help make amends. Before we begin, if you are a survivor of a residential school or you have a family member who is a survivor and you need to talk this out with someone who can uh, help you and who has the mental health learnings and capacity to help see you through uh, whatever crisis or whatever emotions you are feeling, there is a crisis line you can get in touch with. It is at one 925 
1-866-925-4419. That's 1-866-925-4419. And before we begin, just a note, this is a discussion about genocide and about the things that happened at residential schools. It may be triggering for some people, so just be careful uh, as we begin the formal interview. So I caught up with Dr. David McDonald last week via Zoom. So Dr. David McDonald, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. Nice to talk to you. Uh, to start with, you know, maybe I was thinking about my own educational experience and learning Canadian history in high in like from K to 12 kind of deal. It starts off with, you know, first contact when Indigenous people meet Europeans. And of course, that's where it starts because that's where the Europeans come in. But then, you know, you get into things like the Seven Year War, uh, War of 1812, Confederation. But then you get to the 20th century and, you know, Indigenous people start to disappear from the story. Um, and I'm just thinking to myself, is that part of the problem here? We only consider the Indigenous people sort of in context of like how Canada got started. We don't consider them part of the story once kind of Canada gets rolling. Like maybe you got maybe you bring Louis Rial into the into it at around the the end of the 19th century. But other than that, uh, the Canadian story as we're taught is kind of a European story. Yeah, I think that's pretty true. Um, especially when you get to World Wars One and Two, uh, or the Korean War, and then you get into peacekeeping. Uh, I mean, a lot of 20th century history is just about wars in which Canada is like on the good side. And yeah. we have that big, big fancy uh, military museum in, in Ottawa, which essentially just tells that story. I mean, I guess now they kind of weave some indigenous like participation in the wars, things like that through it. But it, but indigenous peoples, rather than being central actors in the 20th century are more sort of, they're along for the ride. And I think that's maybe the difference is that um, Canada takes off and it does all these things. And then indigenous people are kind of like, Either they're not there, they're just kind of going along for the ride. And that's really what, what you see a lot of in, in the way that history has been, I think, taught traditionally. Um, and then you get, you get multiculturalism coming in in the 60s. And so, uh, you know, that becomes the, the new way of, of thinking of Canada ethnically. Um, I mean, the other thing, too, is I guess the, the squeakiest wheel has always gotten the grease and... Um, that's in terms of Quebec, that's always been a big thing. Right. Um, I mean, in the sixties, you get, you get Trudeau bringing in bilingualism and then also multiculturalism, uh, which are two things that both distract from uh, seeing Canada as an indigenous country uh, in some ways. And then you've got the two Quebec uh, referendums and uh, you know, so people are all scared. Oh, the country's going to break apart. But again, it doesn't have much to do with indigenous peoples. I mean, they're, in the media, they're kind of on the sidelines. And, uh, and, and so a lot of the big events that the media covers anyway, don't, don't really seem to include a lot of indigenous content. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I mean, and that's part of the problem from, from my perspective as a, a reporter too, is that, you know, it's hard to cover systemic things, things that go back like 100, 200 years, because like, where do you begin with covering them? Um, and and this, can, this isn't just the, like a sort of a matter of, you know, the treatment of indigenous people. But I mean, that goes to like 
homelessness, um, you know, healthcare, you know, big things that there are systemic issues for. You just you have no idea where to begin because there's kind of it's it's hard to jump on in the middle of these stories. Yeah, no, I think that's very true. I mean, and the length of news segments is shorter. I mean, the nice thing about a podcast, at least, is you can you could have a five part series and you could take people through different periods of history every you know every week or whatever, and you can kind of get at things that way. So I don't know. It's it's funny because I think I think the podcast generation is actually probably more attuned to history than mm. you know some of us probably were in the '90s or '80s. You know when uh, you've only got three channels and if Peter Mansbridge doesn't say it, then it didn't happen, kind of thing. Um, but you know, now there's there's a lot of variety. I mean, there's a lot of uh, a lot of bad places you could go for your news, um, but there's also a lot of uh, good places as well. Um, so I don't know. It's it's interesting looking at the way that the media works and how uh, how history is presented, and then just how different generations of people get their get their news. Um, and uh, so I, I do find that pretty interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, I think there are mediums now that enable people if they really want to, to learn a lot more about history than, I mean, as a kid, we had encyclopedias, you know, we had right. physical encyclopedias in the house. Uh, if it was on the fifth estate or whatever on CBC, you'd, you'd learn about it. But, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of in-depth treatment there either. So I don't think it's ever been really good. I think the podcast era is maybe a bit better actually in some ways, um, but you got to go out and find that material, but, but it, I think right. it's there than it used to be. Well, speaking of going out and finding it, I mean, what drew you to the topic of, you know, residential schools and, you know, the ideas about the, the genocide of indigenous people, you know, how, how did, where, where do you come into the story? <laughs> yeah. Well, my, uh, my mom's family's from Trinidad. So I'm a mixed race person and I'm half Indian. Um, and, uh, so her family were brought in in the 1850s to cut sugarcane and they were indentured laborers. Right. So, after the British got rid of slavery, they uh, they basically kind of fooled a lot of Indian people into going over on ships. I mean, they supposedly signed contracts, but I mean, none of them really could read and write in English uh, and maybe not necessarily in their own languages either. So they went over to Trinidad and they cut the sugar cane. And um, my mom's family ended up in Regina, Saskatchewan in the 60s. And uh, so I was raised in Regina. Uh, in the 70s and 80s, um, and it was a very segregated city. Uh, you had areas where it was primarily indigenous peoples and uh, areas that were primarily white. Uh, it was a pretty racist environment. Um, I wouldn't say my Caribbean family had made a lot of cousins there. They didn't have a lot of fun uh, in that sense. Um, and so I sort of always grew up with racism, with the idea that Regina kind of is a apartheid city but you know it's kind of uh uh that there were clear boundaries between different ethnic groups of people and uh and so when i was you hear a lot of negative stories about things sorry about the clock uh it uh um it's my wife's uh, uh father's grandfather clock anyway uh so yeah you i guess that's how i kind of start on thing I, I just there was a lot of myths of canada you know Canada is great. Multiculturalism works. Every, everyone's happy. Um, all this kind of thing. And uh, I mean, it just didn't seem intuitively to be the case. Uh, the other thing was I did French immersion in school. So uh, all the school I had was uh, was about how awesome Quebec and the French Canadians were. And 
how horrible the British were. And, <laughs> but then you're around society and you're like, well, you know, th there's not a lot of French stuff there. So you're just kind of always questioning things. And I suppose that that's part of what, what that comes from. But, um, but I did, I did become quite interested in, in looking at uh, genocide. Um, I suppose first for the Holocaust, it was on TV a lot uh, and in movies. Um, I also, uh, I started university during the war in Yugoslavia. So mm. uh, actually my PhD thesis and uh, the first book that I wrote was looking at uh, the Yugoslav conflict and basically how, and I went over to Croatia during the war um, at a point where the Serbs had occupied a third of the country. There were UN peacekeepers all around. I was like, 22, 23. So it's kind of fun going, seeing all this peacekeeping stuff going on and like bits of sandbags and soldiers with guns and, um, and, but, but just a lot of people also lying and denying history. Uh, and like the Croatian, uh, Croatia at that time had, uh, there was a fascist government in the 1940s and uh, which had killed lots of people. And they had big pictures of, of Ante Pavlic, the, uh, the Ustasha, the, the fascist leader up everywhere. And so there was an interesting period of historical revisionism and the same was true on the Serbian side as well with, with a lot of stuff. Um, so I became very interested in looking at issues of genocide, but also at, um, I suppose, how denial of genocide was a political act, but also how accusing someone else of genocide is also a political act. So, mm. um, so in a theoretical sense, and there's a whole big, huge body of literature that, uh, looks at all these kind of questions of national identity and what sort of memories come to the surface and whatnot and what what does how is history politicized so these are some of the questions i think and then um then at a certain point i started writing more close to home i, I think maybe having looked at cases in other countries um i started seeing things happening in canada so um I came at it from an insider, but I suppose also an outsider perspective as well. A lot of the time I started writing on this stuff, I was, I was teaching at a university in New Zealand. So, um, so I wasn't in Canada when most of the residential schools information and the class action suits and a lot of the controversy arose. I was, uh, yeah, I was in, I was in this hemisphere here. Mm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, my, sort of a long, long winded way of, kind of giving you the, the background of all that. No, no, it, that's that's fine, and I I do also want to appreciate the acknowledgement of your your priceless family heirloom. Um, I guess it comes down to I, you know, and you kind of touched on this too. The idea has always been that genocides happen in other places. We've been very reticent, and I mean, things like residential schools here in Canada, or even just the general treatment of Indigenous people here in Canada, but you know, also extending to something like the Tulsa race riot in 1921, we've become very, very good at you know, kind of erasing the genocides that happen in North America while being hyper. And I know you wrote about this too, which is why I'm getting to it, but you know, we've yeah. kind of become hyper aware of being able to identify genocides that happen in other places. Yeah. It seems like we are, um, I guess maybe, multi-personality about this we, we we kind of can't accept them think bad things happening here but we can ex but our other personality you know to protect ourselves from that it recognizes the bad things over there and it becomes very bifurcated that way yeah i mean i think that's that's exactly right uh, i mean i think at, at base most people want to think they're good people right um they want to think that if uh 
if they're in a situation where something bad is going on, they would they would intervene on the side of good. Uh, and uh, and so and, and that's why denial is is in a general sense. I mean, I'm talking about genocide, but it's it's attractive. Like it's like you don't you don't want to think of yourself as bad. Um, and so and you don't really want to think of your society as bad, especially if you've got to follow the rules of that society. So uh, it's probably a natural human inclination for us to to deny bad things that will have an impact on, on how we see ourselves and how we interact on a day-to-day basis. Um, something happening in Rwanda, unless we're of Rwandan origin, um, you know, it's, it's fine in terms of, you know, we can, like, if, if you go through the Human Rights Museum, and I've written about this, the Museum for Human Rights in Winnipeg, I mean, everything's just like, you know, Canada was great. We, <laughs> we marched in the streets to, against this, or we sent peacekeepers here, or we are a haven for the survivors, you know, and, uh, and so we use those stories to make us feel good about being Canadians. And again, that's, that's a normal part of statecraft. I mean, if everyone feels bad about their own state, then you're not going to weave together a, a, a national project. Like it's, it's going to be hard to do. So um, again, I mean, I, it's, it, it totally makes sense that, that that's what people should try to do, but um, it just happens to not be all that accurate in many right. cases. Yeah. I guess then the next problem is how do you how do we start to overcome that? How do we like kind of live with both sides of that personality? Because and, I, and I'm I'll share with you something I heard at the uh, a vigil that was held downtown Guelph here. Um, an indigenous person got up and said, "Like I appreciate everybody being here tonight." And there was a big crowd; it was like five hundred some odd people. But she said, "I don't want." to have the flag waved in my face at the end of the month, because I mean, it, it's, it's, it's kind of fascinating that we have indigenous history month in June. And then the first day right after that is Canada day. And it feels like yeah. we're rubbing that bifurcated personality in, in everyone's face that we can have a month to redress or attempt to redress some of the bad things that have happened to our indigenous people. But then the, the next day it's like super patriotic flags waving everywhere. Oh, Canada fireworks. It, it just, it, it seems impractical kind of living that way. And, and, and how do we kind of, I guess in, in your estimation, how do we start to reconcile that? I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, again, it probably comes down to the individual people, I suppose, to figure out what, what people want to do about it. I mean, for me, I've just kind of become reluctant to, to celebrate Canada day. Um, and it's not like a conscious decision, but I've just sort of like, well, you know, maybe it's not really something that I'm all that excited about. And, uh, you know, I don't, I, I guess I've kind of gotten turned off by it. I, mm. I'm not, I don't know that I've consciously not wanted to do anything about it, but uh, yeah. So, and maybe that's, I guess I guess the narrative, and this is probably where things get complicated, is that the I think it's certainly the Trudeau government, probably the Harper government as well before that, um, kind of uses Canada Day and also um, you know Indigenous History Month or, or or some of these things of like the the apology for the residential schools as kind of a way of absolving Canada, right? So mm-hmm. it's like, well, we're doing these nice things, so Canada Day isn't just like saying Canada's great; it's like Canada is adequately dealing with its past and these problems. So that becomes part of the problem because uh, again, you're waving the flag, but also you're kind of rubber stamping what the government has done and saying, that's probably enough, right? That's probably enough to, um, 
to deal with these issues. Um, and then they're also put firmly in the past and they don't really look at the continuity of it. So I don't know, it's, it's, it's hard to know what, I think people probably have to look at their own, you know, whether they feel a bit icky about celebrating Canada Day or, or, or not, you know, um, or maybe they feel, you know, revulsion by Aboriginal History Month. I mean, there'll be people that, that do, that, that think that Canada is, you know, is a British construction and, uh, and everyone should just simply assimilate into that. I mean, there's, that, there's been some articles in the newspaper, I can't, the, I can't remember where it is, circulating on Twitter anyway, where there's a retired judge making a number of arguments like that. You've probably seen that maybe on Twitter, this stuff making the rounds anyway. I mean, it's not impossible to think of, you know, somebody living up at, at a Wapiscat or another First Nation as having water issues. And, you know, you're seeing the Minister of Heritage or the Prime Minister tweeting about, you know, uh, National Indigenous History Month and thinking, well, I mean, that's nice that there's some nice, you know, festivals and street parties and things, but <laughs> I can't turn the tap and the water comes out. <laughs> yeah. So it doesn't mean a lot. Um, yeah. It becomes a kind of virtue signaling thing, a sort of a, uh, a way of getting some moral capital. Um, and I think that's that's part of it. As I kind of said before, like people generally want to feel good about themselves. They want to feel good about their society. And I mean, Justin Trudeau or any of the political leaders are no different. They, they want to feel good about themselves in Canada. So they'll do things that they think will symbolize their good intentions. Uh, and then they want the rest of us to to applaud them. Uh, right. in some way, either at the ballot box or, or whatever. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I just find it really difficult to, to do that. Uh, but again, there's a lot of people that do. So it's, uh, it's, it's tricky. Well, I do appreciate what you said. Like maybe it's an, a thing we have to respect on sort of like an individual basis, but it, uh, you know, that's very hard from, because you see the comments online and I've certainly seen the comments online. I'm sure you have too, about people, you know, Oh, well, this was like a long time ago. This was, you know, forever ago. Um, all those people are dead now. <laughs> or, you know, it's, you know, Canada, love it or leave it or taking Canada back. And, and just, you know, th there's a whole spectrum of things that are made are sort of built to make you think um, this is the past and it's over. And I think one of the things and maybe you can disagree with me is like the discovery at the Kamloops Residential School is it, it kind of reinforces perhaps adding to that discomfort is that this is actually pretty far from over. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the graves, I mean, that's that's the beginning, I think. Um, I mean, you had the conservatives even getting up in Parliament uh, and asking for the government to fund the ground penetrating radar and certainly the liberals and the NDP are keen and the green party. So people want to find out what's going on and they want to, I think, get, get to the root of how, how bad the problem is. Uh, so, yeah, we're just, you know, th this is the beginning of, of that whole phase of, of things. I mean, the, the Harper government never wanted to, to front up the cash to, to find all, all those missing children's graves. Uh, and uh, I mean, some of the interviews I did with people, I mean, they, they put in requests for funding and it was just like, you know, now that's, that's sort of outside of the scope of what you should be doing. So we're not going to give you that money. And, uh, you know, six years later, those, you know, the remains of those dead children are still there and people still know that there's stuff to find. So, yeah. I was going to ask you about that in your experience. Um, 
I think I, I read an article with, I think it was Justice Sinclair who said that he expects that it's maybe 11,000 missing kids right. at the end of the day. But I mean, I guess if there's anyone who might know where the bodies are buried, it might be you. So, I mean, what are we? Me? Are we <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't know too much about, uh, about the details of that. Um, I know that uh, I read in the Globe and Mail, uh, uh, Senator Sinclair said up to 15,000. Mm -hmm. So I'm assuming that's probably that probably pretty accurate. Uh, I mean, I did interview the uh, different people involved with the Missing Children Project uh, at the TRC, and uh, they wouldn't give specific numbers because they just didn't really know. But uh, but yeah, I mean, there'll, there'll be a lot of uh, a lot of graves um, there and uh, it's going to be very difficult uh, for those communities because um, because then they have to decide what to do in a ceremonial sense. I mean, who, who are these, who are these, these children? Mm -hmm. um, what families do they belong to? Uh, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and so there may be ceremonial aspects of things that are maybe different from sort of the Western, Western ways of dealing with, with, with death or, or that sort of thing. I mean, each culture has ways of, of dealing with stuff. And I think so. So there may be some communities that are not, are not ready to to go through that process because it would be an incredibly triggering process, um, and there'll be other communities that want to. So I think I think the government saying uh, we'll let the communities lead and tell us what they want and what they need is useful uh, because um, a heavy-handed government approach like um, some kind of CSI thing. <laughs> you know, with the RCMP or whatever, you know, would, would be a, would be a complete disaster. Yeah. And, uh, and I don't think, you know, and, and I think that the territory has to be, yeah, has to be treated respectfully. So I can't imagine there would be any circumstance where they'd want RCMP on site, but no. Uh, yeah. I, I guess another part of this too is, and I think this is probably something a lot of people are struggling to understand. It's like, if, if there are like 15,000 dead kids out there waiting to be found, is there paperwork on this? And if there is like, who has the paper? Like, like how, how do you even begin to sort all this out? Well, that's the big question. Um, we do know that there were, I guess you'd call them, uh, well, they're destruction of records. I mean, Indian affairs destroyed lots of records in the 1930s and at other times, uh, Sometimes they did it for the same reason that libraries just get rid of old books because they're not considered useful anymore. At other times, uh, they were destroying incriminating evidence. Uh, at the schools, the same thing. I mean, there's, um, there's cases of residential schools where uh, the school was demolished, all the records were inside. I mean, I've talked to a survivor who went into the residential school after it had been destroyed and all the books from the library were just and he helped me got a few books from the residential school because uh, he remembered them as a kid. And, uh, and so, uh, so records just get routinely destroyed. I mean, what is also coming out more and more, and a lot of people that will know this anyway, is that the Catholic church has not fronted up uh, with their records. Um, the, uh, so the legal counsel, former legal counsel for the TRC and others have, have uh, made some pretty impassioned pleas for the Catholic church to, to, to front up with the records. I mean, the thing with the Catholic Church is that they're they're actually considered a series of Catholic entities. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you probably they're 
there's something called the corporation soul. So I, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a Catholic, so I don't know exactly how this all works, but, um, but there are, um, there are bishops and each bishop kind of controls a diocese and they are like a, they're like a separate corporate body. So um, when they call on the Pope to apologize, I mean, maybe he will sometime, but, um, but there's also this idea that the Pope isn't actually responsible for what happens in each diocese. It's, it's very confusing because I, I was raised in the United church and there's a moderator and, you know, the moderator apologizes for stuff or they have the meeting and they elect the moderator and then everyone has the same moderator. And, um, but there, there's been a lot of big problems with the Catholic church and not, not sharing the records that they have, not necessarily paying the kind of money that they should be paying. And they did run a large proportion of the schools. So these are, these are big issues. Um, and it's uh, in New Zealand here too, there's a, a Royal Commission on Abuse and Care. And uh, um, there are levels of intransigence from, again, from, from, from the churches. Uh, I don't know enough about here to comment on what, which church is better at handing over records than others, but, um, but there, there have been some big problems in Canada with that. So the short answer is some of the documents were destroyed. Some of them never existed. Uh, and others are probably somewhere, but they're not being released. So makes it really complicated it's interesting to you know a lot of people in the last couple of weeks have focused on getting the pope to apologize and as you said he it's probably fairly likely that he will but i mean that's a the way you just described it there that's kind of another performance thing We're, we're we're very focused on hearing the pope say uh you know i'm sorry on behalf of the catholic church but i mean in terms of like practical immediate things the church can do to try and help like releasing records that's kind of being overlooked yeah and uh and paying paying what it should be paying for certain things there's certain undertakings that the catholic entities said they would do and and they never did i mean the the other churches as far as i can see have fronted up with the cash they promised and the catholic entities have not been not been so forthcoming so that's that's obviously a big problem um i mean i think there's some larger questions too about why uh why institutions that, I mean, the TRC is found guilty of cultural genocide, and we can talk about genocide later, but uh, why these institutions continue to have charitable status and to be protected by the government? Um, you know, sh- should they have charitable status? Um, I, I, d- I don't know. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things I think we need to think about in terms of, of the responsibility and liability for these churches. Uh, what we do know of the history as well is that sometimes the churches went ahead of the government. I mean, they, mm-hmm. they set up schools and went to the government afterwards to, to fund them. So it's all well and good to say the Canadian government is to blame, but they, the churches were often a, a very willing participant for, for much of this. And they often ran ahead, ahead with the ball and, and the state actually had to catch up in some cases. So uh, it's, it's a complicated history. Just to, I don't want to get too far off onto this this rail, but I mean, are, are yeah, you proposing yeah. that you know, as recompense in a sense, for for I mean, residential schools and crimes against Indigenous people, maybe an option is to start taxing the Catholic Church. Well, I think you would tax all the churches. Right. Um, I think it would be, it would be wrong to tax one and not the other. But yeah. I think you do need <laughs> to think about um, a general principle in law of, of, you know, holding, holding churches. Maybe they, I, I don't know. Like, I mean, I'm just, I'm just putting it out there. I don't think it'll ever happen because mm. uh, I think there's, uh, 
the churches are, are still quite powerful and, uh, and they also provide things that people want. I mean, the other issue is like, you know, my parents go to United Church, they pay their offering. Um, it goes to the upkeep of the building. It pays the minister and uh, the heating of the building and a little bit of coffee and some, some Nanaimo bars or whatever after <laughs> church, right? But, but there's not a lot left over to go into some other kind of fund. And right. um, so, and a lot of people are just not going to church anyway. So your, your donor pool is drying up. I mean, churches are, are closing down everywhere. So um, are, the, are the remnants of the, of the old faithful that are still going to church should they be financially liable for what was once or once a massive institution? I mean, back in the old days, I mean, there were, there were rules and I think it was more in the UK that people had to go to church. Right. And mm. I mean, uh, and there are countries still, I think where you, you have to designate where a proportion of your income will go and you have to choose a church for that. So there's, mm. so we, we don't exist in it. So, so it's, it, you know what I mean? Like, it's kind of a, uh, it's kind of like saying if you're one of the people that actually go to church and there's not many of you left, then <laughs> you've got to hold the bag for what these people did decades ago. And I'm, I don't know, like, but I think you could definitely go after the church holdings. And I think that's um, if a church is in partnership with the government and is running a school and has developed a large asset base because of its involvement in what we could say is some sort of, you know, quasi criminal activity or, or, you know, cultural genocide, if you want to call it that. Um, then maybe there, maybe some of those assets need to be to be carefully looked at. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe maybe they they shouldn't be hanging on to whatever properties and things they have. So it, it, I'm I'm not saying that should happen. I don't know enough about it, but I think I think these are questions that people have been asking for a long time, and there are people right on it. Um, might be time for the government to to have a look at that too. Maybe worth a conversation. Yeah. Well, we kind of been circling around it, but, you know, on the topic of genocide, I guess from your point of view, would you, and, and, and not necessarily like the academic def definitions of it, but I just like, in, when you're talking sort of in layman's terms about what people would conventionally think of a genocide, does what happened to the indigenous people count? Yeah, I, I, I would I would say so. And I have I have said so in my publications uh, and I focus on two E. So the article two uh, element E of the Genocide Convention, which is international law, but it's also domestic law in Canada, says you can't forcibly transfer children from one group to another group. Um, so back when Raphael Lemkin coined the term, he gives us examples of of invaders and others kidnapping people's kids and raising them as as their own basically you you cut off all the future leadership you cut off the ability of of those people to actually think of themselves as members of that group uh and if they have no you know no identity as being part of that group anymore well then the group effectively effectively ceases to exist so um so i think that's you know i, I make the case in my book that that's that's essentially what what happened. And I think it was intentional as well. Um, I know that Senator Sinclair has a, a similar view to mine. Um, he said numerous times that, uh, that 2E was violated. Uh, he also, I interviewed him and he said that he went to the lawyers of the TRC with a report, said he wanted to say it was genocide. And they said, you can't because it's not, the mandate prohibits it essentially. And so he had to pull mm. back on that. Uh, 
So it's not a particularly radical thing. Back in 2002, the Assembly of First Nations uh, officially recognized the uh, residential schools again as 2E. So, uh, you know, national indigenous bodies for two decades have been talking about this. Uh, so I, th I, think, I think the case is pretty conclusive. These people are gonna disagree with me. Uh, they'll say it's not intentional, um, not enough indigenous kids went to the schools, uh, or maybe their identity wasn't destroyed in the way that they think the genocide convention would, would say that. But I mean, I, I go through a lot of those arguments in some detail and I won't, won't get into them now unless you want me to, but- uh, <laughs> Well, I was, gonna, <laughs> I was just thinking like, when people say it wasn't intentional, and they try to levy that argument. It was, you look at the map of where residential schools were across Canada. When you see the whole of Canada, it's covered with dots. And it went yeah. on for over a hundred years. And at like, at what point do you draw the line between intentional and unintentional? Is it a hundred years? Is it 200 years doing the same thing for 200 years? I mean, that's, I, mean, I don't, I don't really weird, understand. Right? I don't, yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's weird. I don't really understand the argument that, that it's not intentional. Right. Um, I mean, I suppose what they're wanting is some kind of smoking gun where someone, right. I mean, and you, you get, you get speeches, you get legislation and things like that, but I suppose they want someone to say, um, we want to destroy indigenous people. So we're going to use a school system and that's going to be our main vehicle. And then we don't want there to be any more indigenous people, but we just want them to be like slightly more tanned, kind of Canadians who speak English and say, God save the queen. I don't know. Like, I mean, it's, they want I the super villain speech. They, they want, want the super they villain the speech. Super villain. And in yeah. a way, like, you know, all of us that have watched lots of Holocaust movies we're we've been spoiled, right? Cause we're, we're expecting Hitler to come along and say the Canadian Hitler and say, this is what I'm going to do. And then we want a bunch of uh, people carrying out these orders and dressing up in, in the Hugo Boss uniforms that the SS had and, and doing this stuff. But I mean, you know, that's, that's a very specific kind of, of genocide. And, um, and that intent was spelled out in ways that, you know, it's, it's not really going to be possible in a democracy where you've got to, you've got to hide stuff. If you want to do something bad, you, you keep it out of the way. But even, even the Nazis, I mean, they, those, those death camps are not in, in downtown Germany. They weren't in Berlin or something. I mean, most of them were, were in Poland or, or the Czechoslovakia or somewhere else. I mean, they, they had some in Germany, but they, it, it wasn't like it was, they're necessarily proud of the way they were doing what they were doing. Um, right. One of the first things Eisenhower did when he got to Dachau was to have the townspeople brought in to see what was going on at this big facility on the edge of their town, because some of them weren't, I mean, maybe had vague awareness, but in terms of the, the, meat and potatoes of what was happening on those grounds every day they were willfully ignorant or just plain ignorant yeah i think i think there was probably a lot of willful ignorance i mean yeah uh because again yeah i suppose you wouldn't want to know i mean it's 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 an absolutely horrific thing to have to deal with you know uh so yeah i mean i think there's a tremendous amount of willful blindness during the holocaust uh, and there would have been to a certain extent with the residential schools as well. Mm. Um, a lot of people said they didn't know, but then I've talked to a lot of people, older generations of people who said that they, they knew something strange was going on. Like they would, they'd be on sports teams and they'd play against the, the kids from the local residential school. And they'd notice that the kids were, you know, 
really subdued or whatever. Like, I mean, just so, so there's actually quite a few, a lot of anecdotes about people knowing that something was wrong. Now they couldn't put their finger on what it was, uh, but, uh, but certainly there are a lot of, a lot of sort of settlers uh, who, who felt that way, uh, including people that I know have chatted to often about that. Um, or they, they play often, a game one weekend, uh, a kid who used to be shortstop wasn't there anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and you'd get it or, or there'd be like unexplained injuries and things like yeah. that. Um, so there were, there were things like that. Uh, and just, you know, just, just a lot of, a lot, a lot of stories. So, um, so I, I would say like genocide, forcible transfer, I think the case can be made pretty easily. It already really has been. Uh, yeah. So that would be, that would be my take on it. I guess the next part of that, though, is like, where do we kind of or how do we, you know, make this more of a priority in terms of school and in terms like going back to the history classes I came up in? You know, at what point do you, I guess, as gently as humanly possible, start working in this not alternative history of Canada, but this uh, hidden history of Canada that, you know, we, we don't really want to talk about because of shame or whatever, but you know, how do we enhance that kind of learning? The, like, I guess the dark side of Canada in, in amongst, you know, helping to win world war two and, you know, creating the, the multicultural state and universal healthcare and all these things that we're proud of Canada for, but how do we, how do we make sure we highlight the, the dark corners as well? Well, that gets, that gets tricky if it's just a, if it's just a horror story. Right. Um, I suppose what the government needs to do and maybe, the, you know, is to, is I think to recognize, you know, and, and you may know there's a, the NDP introduced a motion today yep. to have uh, the government recognize it. So step one is the government recognizes that they did this. So, so they recognize it and then, and they work towards a, a happy conclusion to, to some of these, these problems. Um, but I think you could start teaching history, looking at, uh, Indigenous nations, who they were, where they were before before the Europeans came along. Uh, a big focus on treaties as well, uh, and treaties with Indigenous peoples between Indigenous nations, uh, not just between Europeans, but there were treaties with each other. All kinds of different laws about waters, lands, animals, plants, everything. Right. So you, you start you start looking at you know North America or Turtle Island as as full of civilizations with their own diplomatic protocols and their own way of doing things, their own laws. Uh, the Europeans come along, there's some treaties made there too. Uh, and then you kind of tell the story, I suppose that way, but you don't, you don't want to start it with the Europeans. I think you want to start yeah. it earlier than that. And what I think a lot of people are critical of is this uh, depravity narrative where indigenous peoples are just the victims. Right? right. And so I think if you start talking about, residential schools and genocide all the time uh then rather than seeing indigenous peoples as as treaty people uh as civilizations as governments you begin to see them as like i don't know like uh like like victims of genocide only and that's not a useful story because it's kind of then there's just a whole problem of oh well let's let's heal the first nations because they're suffering and let's let's bring them up to the, you know, the same economic standard. And, and those are, you know, important things, but it, it just really ignores the, 
I guess you'd call it the political actorhood of First Nations, uh, right. which is really, really important in the story. Because uh, it wasn't just that the government went after uh, people, they went after governments. And right. they had to destroy functioning governments and functioning civilizations uh, in order to replace them with something else. And that, that story really isn't told. I, I don't know how you, how you tell it in a nice way, to be honest. I mean, it's not, <laughs> it's not a nice story, right? So um, I think if things are actually changing and you feel people can say, well, like the Europeans, like they're happy to learn about the Holocaust because they've made a break between the present and the past. And they say, well, that was, that was our grandfathers and grandmothers who did that stuff. Uh, that was in the past. We've learned from it and we moved on. But we haven't had that point at which we say we've, we've moved on. We haven't right. learned the lessons of the past. I mean, the same political parties that, that set up the residential schools are the same parties in the House now, right? I mean, right. the same parties, the same RCMP, the same bureaucracies, uh, the same churches. Like, there's total continuity. Now, we can say, oh, everyone's nicer now. But structurally, it's, yeah. it's, it's all the same stuff, right? Like, I mean, Nazi Germany has gone. Like, the, you know, the Reichstag is gone. Like, right. Stalin is gone. Like, these, you know, the Soviet Union is dead, right? But, um, but you know, the Canadian Parliament and the RCMP and the, the churches continue. And so that's, yeah, that's, that's, I don't know how you make that break, but it, it becomes difficult. Yeah. Right. Maybe to wrap up, because, I mean, this has also been a big part of it, too, is um, the, the statue of Edgerton Ryerson is down and is, is likely down for good. There's been a lot of talk about statues of, of John A. MacDonald. And for mm. people who are disappointed at seeing this um, make the point that it's part of our history and it should not be ignored and taking down statues is wrong because it's a betrayal of our history. Since you are a history professor... I'm a political and science you, professor, but political science professor, but yeah. you, you, you look backwards to history. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. What is the historical value of statues? I don't know. You know, <laughs> I honestly don't get it. I, I don't I don't actually like the idea of finding someone who is like famous for five minutes. You know, okay, Johnny is not famous for five minutes, but whatever. Like they're they're famous in, in their lifetime. Maybe they had a lot of money. Maybe they did a couple of neat things a hundred years ago uh, and they gave lots of money to the Rotary Club or the city of Hamilton. Or I don't know, whatever. So they get a statue, but, you know, or, or they get to have a university named after them. I, I just think it's weird having, I think you should have a statute of limitations on a statue. Like it goes up. It's, it's like a car, right? You know, right. <laughs> you don't buy a car and expect it to last forever. If you get 10 years out of a car, that's pretty good. I think if you get 10 years out of a statue, that's pretty good. At the end of the 10 years, the local population can decide whether, whether that statue still represents them as a community and whether they want their kids and grandkids to see that statue and feel inspired by it. If the answer is no, melt it down, make, make a, make a statue of someone else or make, make, or something like that. So I don't, I don't think just because something is made out of bronze, it has to be there forever. Um, and, and that's kind of a general principle, but I, I just don't really like the idea of statues anyway. I think I have a statue of a polar bear or whatever, that's fine. But like, um, <laughs> it's kind of weird having statues of people anyway. So, uh, so I don't see the necessity of it. And the same is true of like naming buildings and bridges and universities after people as well. Uh, I, I also think that's kind of strange. I think it, it takes what is a finite human being with, with flaws and limitations and 
elevating them to to the status of an institution. And uh, so it's yeah, uh, I just find the concept kind of strange. So uh, for me, the idea of like pulling down statues or changing names, I think it's just it's a it's a normal part of human history and something we should probably do more often. Excellent. That's the kind of context I wanted to put on the record. But okay, McDonald, thank you so much for your time and your expertise today. And uh, we really appreciate it. And uh, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, Adam. And And once again, that was Dr. David McDonald. You can read McDonald's most recent commentary at theconversation.com. And you can still buy his book, The Sleeping Giant Awakens, Genocide, Indian Residential Schools, and the Challenge of Conciliation in paperback and e-reader format wherever you buy your books. National Indigenous Peoples Day is Monday, June 21st. And again, if you are a survivor of a residential school or you are a family member of a survivor and you do need help dealing with that emotional stuff and your mental health, uh, please do reach out and call the crisis line at one 925 4419 that is 18669254419 and if you miss that you can write it down from the show notes page of uh this episode so uh it's all over the place easy to find uh and do definitely do get in touch if you feel the need that is it for this edition of the Guelph Politicast. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. The Guelph Politicast is usually recorded at CFRU at the University Center on the University of Guelph campus. And to learn more about CFRU, go to CFRU.ca. You can download the Guelph Politicast on Wednesday from Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can download it directly from the host on Podbean at guelphpoliticast.podbean.com. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you will get an episode of Open Sources Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. You can get in touch with me by email at animedonaldson at gmail.com. Reach me through Twitter at animedonaldson or at guelphpolitico. Find Guelph Politico on Facebook at facebook.com slash politicoguelph. And if you'd like to help build a locally sourced independent media outlet in the city of Guelph, please consider donating to Guelph Politico, and you can find out how at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. And for all the latest local political news, check out guelphpolitico.ca, where there will be a new episode of the Guelph Politicast for you next week. And until then, we will see you next time. 